listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. This is the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw, your guitar scientist with over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars. This is a podcast about guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, and guitar opinions. This is a special episode, no question and answer. Today, we're going to do an interview, an interview with Todd Lunaberg. Todd is an industry veteran, a guitar maker, a guitar repair guy. He's been at it for years, and he's also been a road tech, a, a, a guitar road technician uh, for many bands, and we're going to talk about a little bit of that, and that's why I reached out to him. Uh, I wanted to get somebody's input on what it's like to be on a major tour, to be the guitar tech on a, on a major tour, and all the ins and outs and uh, what that entails and what it's like. So we're going to talk to Todd about that, and uh, he's got some pretty cool stories. I think you're really going to like it. As far as what's going on around here, not too much is new. I'm just cranking out custom orders, trying to keep up with uh, everybody's custom orders, which is great. It's good to be it's good to be in demand, you know. I I can't complain because I'm busy. If you want to take a look at what I've got for sale, you can go over to pinupcustomguitars.com or just pinupguitars.com. Either one will get you there. If you don't want a full-on guitar, I also sell pickups. I sell pick guards, uh, the Bakelite uh, early Telecaster recreation, Bakelite aged pick guards. And uh, you can custom order pickups. You can custom order a lot of things from me. So you can take a look at that over there if you want. And if you only have a few bucks and you want to buy something, you could buy some stickers. We've got stickers for the Fret Files podcast over there. Stickers for Melco Leather, my lovely wife's business, making guitar straps. And stickers for pin-up custom guitars. So if you want to, if you want to support the show and uh, throw us a few bucks, you could order a pack of stickers. Anyhow, I like to uh, give you uh, an update on what's on my bench lately. I just finished a neck reset on a, uh, a early 50s Gibson J50. The guitar had been uh, the guitar had been a little bit through the mill. Somebody tried to take the back off and split it in the process. I had to try to patch that together and make it look decent. It needed a neck reset and a new new saddle and and the whoever tried to take the back off. I don't know what they were trying to do, but they also cracked the heel. So I had to make a bunch of repairs and then make it 
try to make it look as good as possible. It's always hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube once somebody has done unprofessional things to a guitar, but I did the best I could, and it turned out very nice. It's it's going to be a nice player's grade. Uh, it sounds great and plays great, So, and that's all you can ask for, really. Uh, what else have I been working on? I have been uh, working on a few vintage Fenders. I just finished a refret on a 54 uh, Fender Telecaster for a customer. Very nice telly. I also just finished uh, rewiring a 50s Esquire for somebody who the pots had just plumb worn out on this guitar. It's a guitar I've known for years, and uh, I've been trying to keep the original electronics going for years, and I can make it work for a while, but then that I think the carbon path on the pots were just worn out, so there was no help in it there. So we took the original wiring harness out and wired up a new wiring harness so that he could keep the original electronics in the case, in case it ever needed to be, you know, restored back to original. But with those pots not working, it just wasn't a gig-worthy guitar, so we put some fresh electronics in there. And now he can gig with it without a bunch of crackling. So that's what I've been up to, among other things. There's always the setups and and run-of-the-mill things that aren't worth mentioning. But anyhow, let's uh, let's have an interview, shall we? Joining me now is Todd Luneberg of TL Guitars. Where, where are you based out of, Todd? Uh, I'm in Americus, Georgia, which is basically two and a half hours south of Atlanta. Oh, okay. So, right in the, in the heart of Georgia. You've been in Georgia for a long time? No, uh, I'm a recent-ish transplant. I've been here for about three and a half years. Um, I built my career and my life in Minnesota before that. Born in born in North Dakota, career seventeen year career in Minnesota, and then uh, now I'm down in Georgia. Oh, okay. So. What brought you to Georgia? Uh, my wife uh, had the opportunity to um, to work at a hospital down here, so. I can make sawdust anywhere. So yeah, I, totally. I, I go where the boss goes. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> well, I would love to know about your start in the guitar industry. What what got you started, and what uh, was your path that led you to where you are now? Well, I have a story that I kind of tell. Um, so I got my first guitar when I was seven. Told I was I couldn't keep it. Uh, actually, first guitar when I was seven at Christmas. Told I couldn't keep it unless I learned a song by the next morning. So I did the whole one finger, first string, third fret G, uh-huh. and uh, sang Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to that. So then um, my grandfather had a country dance band and uh, guitars galore, pedal steel, um, just laying about the house. So of course, that's all I wanted to do. And of course, my mom said, don't touch it. So it only made me want to kind of get into it more. Plus, he was a farmer, so he'd... My parents would leave me at the farm for two to three weeks uh, a summer, and uh, my grandfather would mis- somehow mistakenly leave his guitar outside of his door every morning when he went to the when he went to work. So it was <laughs> kind of a subtle encouragement, which is yeah. great. I, I so I played all through elementary school, uh, veered off into bass for a while, but. Um, the big thing for me was uh, eighth grade basketball. 
So the the eighth grade basketball players couldn't get on the court until the ninth graders were done. So we had to walk around downtown Alexandria, Minnesota for an hour and a half every day. And I went to the music store and I played everything. And by the time I'd done it for two weeks in a row, I started feeling bad that I wasn't going to ever buy it. So I would start cleaning up my fingerprints and dusting off the guitars. And finally, I was like, well, I want to work here. And the owner looked at me and he was like, well, we don't hire kids. And I'm yeah. like, well, you need me. And he goes, what do you mean? Well, at that point, my mom uh, had me start cleaning her insurance agency when I was 11. So I was a, a, a plucky young 13-year-old at that time. Yeah. And, uh, I was like, well, I can write my name in the in the dust on the piano, on the grand piano in the front window. All of your guitar strings are black and the horns on all your strats all have dust and you have so much garbage piled up against your elevator that you can't get to your elevator. So if you sell a piano, which is upstairs, and that's where all the, you know, the studio pianos and the, the little keyboards were that parents would actually buy their kids. I was like, you can't even deliver it. I was like, school gets out at 315. I'll get here at 330. I'll dump your boxes, I'll clean your bathrooms, and I'll dust your guitars. And uh, and then my mom works six buildings down the way. She gets done at 5.30. I'll leave at 5.20 and, you know, leave you alone. So I worked there for five and a half years and uh, never got paid. They, uh, wow. they, paid me in, they paid me in guitars. Well, there you so go. I would, I would take a guitar off the wall and work off the hours. And, wow. And uh, I went to college college with seven instruments and uh and three amplifiers and yeah it was amazing oh good the Man. uh sounds like you were pretty yeah, ambitious was, yeah well that's i i was sassy i guess and uh sassy. but the the coolest the, the coolest thing was is the guy that did the repair work there was a world war ii um radio repair guy and all he wanted to do was work on amplifiers and we were in the middle of minnesota and you know, if you can find a good amp tech, um, everybody kind of came to him. So he was so swamped with business that cleaning off sticker goo and doing setups was kind of beneath him. So he was like, here, kid, here's how you do this. And, uh, you know, there's six more over there. Get them done by Thursday kind of thing. So I uh, I kind of got to jump in and, and learn a lot just by watching and, and taking direction. And, yeah, it's kind of pushed on since then very cool you know most repair guys and guitar techs that i talk to they seem to have one thing in common uh as far as their younger days go and they were always seems to me like these are people that are always curious about how things work always taking apart things and putting them back together curious about the mechanics of things maybe building a lot of models you know was that you as well uh, kind of my, I kind of probably come at it from the more woodworker side. Oh, my, okay. My grandfather was a seasonal carpenter. So when he wasn't on the farm or out in the fields, he was, um, uh, framing. So he'd do trim work inside of houses in the winter in North Dakota, but he, he also had a, the, uh, the biggest country dance band in Eastern North Dakota. And so I'd sit side stage watching him and my other grandfather, um, owned, uh, or by the time uh, I was in high school, owned a lumberyard. So he worked at a lumberyard his whole life. So I had been around wood, and I had put it together that 
you know, wood and guitars and, and watching a guy, you know, play guitar on stage was kind of a cool thing. So I did have a little of that, you know, I got my, my second place in the Pinewood Derby and the, you know, for Boy Scout stuff, but it was, it was more kind of about the wood than it was, you know, um, I guess the, the, what goes into it kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Interesting. And now, and you make guitars now, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's the, or at least was the primary focus when I was in Minnesota. I, um, I built electrics and, um, and, and until I could kind of get good enough. You can't build a, a, a guitar in Minnesota without being, uh, excuse me, an acoustic guitar in Minnesota without being really good at it because the world's greatest guitar maker lives in Minnesota. So it's, it's kind of hard. <laughs> so I, I built a 50 electric stuff for all the metal kids in town and, um, and uh and then started building acoustics finally when i felt like i could kind of do a decent job putting it all together so yeah but by that point i had been in the cities for 17 years and everybody had kind of found me um which was great so so you balance your time between repairs and building yeah it's it's a weird situation i'm in now it's completely the opposite side of the coin of what i was doing when i was in minnesota so when i was in minnesota i was on call for artists and bands and studios so if a touring band would come in and and uh gonna be recording the next day and their gear arrived and they you know the in-house tech saw that it was all tour shape and they didn't have a tech they'd call me in to do 20 or 30 setups and and you know de beering and uh in order to get it ready for the studio for the next day so i'd work an overnight shift and then go there i'd go down to first avenue and work for a band doing rehearsals for or tour rehearsals or um i'd change your white guitar blue because that's what your tour colors were or whatever <laughs> i was i was as high end and as fancy as you could get, and you had to know uh, a couple layers of people to kind of get to me, which was great. And I had regular clientele that would come religiously every three to four months for setups or before every show, and or they'd call me into their practice spaces to do sets. Here in Georgia, I'm uh, since my wife is is so prominent, I have um, a public shop, which is great, and I speak at schools and I have, um, I get to help out the neighbors and, um, uh, I'm doing repairs and doing lessons and kind of anything and everything that, that can be. And building is about 20%. I'd like it to be 70, but it's, it's, uh, it's not as high as I'd, I'd want it to, but I've got enough to keep me busy. Well, that's so. good. That's good. Uh, you know, a little bit of backstory for the listeners here. The reason we're speaking this evening is I put out a call on the show for someone who has done a lot of road tech work and you reached out to me and said that that's what you've done. And I just wondered if you had any stories or if you wanted to tell us a little bit about road teching and what that entails. Yeah. So I, uh, I started working for, uh, Bon Iver. Uh, people will say Bon Iver. Mm -hmm. um, it's Bon Iver who is a, a Wisconsin artist um, and Grammy winner and uh, sure. Yeah. 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 No, I'm, everyone's familiar. I'm sure. Yeah. So um, I had been tour teching for, you know, finger style guys and local guys um, in the area for quite a while and show teching. Um, but Bon Iver was kind of my, is my big feather 
kind of. So it was it was the chance to be the guy for a guy um, as we we toured the world. And uh, yeah, I did every major TV show. I, um, you know, so Saturday Night Live and Coachella and Bonnaroo and later at Jules Holland and, you know, all of the great venues across Europe. And it was it was really kind of a great thing to to be. But, yeah, stories of loading into Coachella at two o'clock in the morning and having to be off the stage by 4 a.m. So Radiohead could load in and set their lights. And uh, uh, Saturday Night Live almost didn't happen because of an input jack situation. And, uh, yeah, it's a. Yeah, I've got tons of stories. So I imagine um, but, it's it's a pretty high stress gig, you know. I mean, there's there there's uh there's deadlines. There's hard deadlines when you're dealing especially with live television and live performances. Yeah, yeah, so the first thing I was asked to do after I got sussed out and got the gig um was I had to make pedal boards. So the band had he recorded his Justin recorded the second album with a bunch of friends and guys he had met along the way um, during his first album kind of touring. And uh, he had picked all of his favorite friends to kind of make the album. And so they were going to kind of come together and be the guys that went out on the road with to make the band. And so they show up with guitar pedals and guitars and, and amps and stuff, but they've got little Hosa, you know, cables and no pedal boards or anything. So I, I bought pedal trains for everybody and, uh, and handmade all of the cables and wired them all and, and got as many extras as I could to kind of make it work, tested it out. And then, uh, over the course of two days, I built five pedal boards, six pedal boards. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, hand, hand and i this was before they had the 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 really great non-solderless cables um or at least maybe i wasn't smart enough to find them but um but yeah i did it in two days stepped on every every um every button i could to make sure things work and then sent the the band off to do uh colbert and uh fallon um two nights in a row and they didn't take the text they just took management and the band to keep everything small. So I built six pedal boards, not having, and then sent them off to their first experience was to be on TV in New York when I was stuck in Minnesota, unable to kind of do anything about it. So yeah, it was super stressful. I bet, man. Yeah. Fingers crossed. I hope everything works. Yeah. It turned out great. They came back and I redid a couple of things and we got ready to go out on the road. So. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, tour, and I started teching, there is three guitar players and a bass player. Um, so I was the only guitar tech for the first probably six months of dates. And, uh, man, it was cardio. I had a, a drop um, boat, what I called, which is a, a six um, guitar case uh, or guitar stand behind two of the players. And then Justin had one behind him. And I would pre-tune two guitars for, say, song number one, drop them in the drop, and then tune Justin's guitar, go and and hand it off for him. In the meantime, guitar player two and three were picking up the freshly tuned guitars that I had, dropping their guitars that they had just finished with in the in the drop. So I walk off stage with Justin's, grab one of the, the now dead guitars, 
put it in stands off stage, go back onto stage, grab that third guitar, get off stage, look at the at the bass player to make sure he's okay. And then I have to tune three guitars for the next song. So I've got three and a half to four minutes to double check everything and to kind of get it all right. Pre-drop the two and the drop behind the other two guitar players and then do yeah, it was cardio all night long. Oh yeah. It was amazing, but they they finally felt bad for me and let me hire my apprentice. Oh, good. Um, who had been who had been placed with me from the Gallup School and was building guitars with me as an apprentice at the time, and uh, now he's he's just crushing it and, and doing super well. So it's it's was really it was really fun to kind of have that experience where I could do it all, but it was really nice when I didn't have to. Todd, let's take a quick break, and we will be right back after this. here from Emerald City Guitars, located in the heart of historic Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle, Washington. We are one of the world's premier vintage guitar shops, going strong for over 22 years. Specializing in the most rare, the funkiest, and most collectible vintage and pre-owned electric guitars, acoustic guitars, amplifiers, and more. We cater to anyone and everyone, from the guy next door to collectors and famous rock stars. Not only do we pay top dollar for used gear, we also offer trade-ins and consignment. We also have in-house repair and offer free appraisals. We have a variety of social media accounts that we post our goods daily. Find us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram at EC Guitars. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and see our daily episodes of the featured guitar pick of the day and reality of Emerald City Guitars shows. Give us a call to chat in person at 206-382-0231 and visit our online store at www.emeraldcityguitars.com. If you're a fan of the show, it has become obvious to you that I repair and restore guitars. I'm not a hobbyist. This is something I do full-time for a living, and I've done it for almost 25 years. If you have a guitar repair that you need help with, consider sending it to me. I get repairs from all over the country. People send me guitars from far and wide, from Hawaii to Alaska to Florida, and I would love to help you with your guitar. I know a lot of people live in an area where they don't really have a tech or a repair guy that they can trust, or maybe it's a really complicated repair or a really special guitar to you that you don't want to just trust anybody. You can send it to me. I promise you'll be satisfied with the results. I rewind pickups, I restore vintage guitars, I do refrets, broken headstocks, neck resets, you name it, if it's broken on a guitar, I pretty much fix it. So I'd love to help you out. You can go to my website to read more about me and to see a price chart. Go to ericdaw.com, that's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. And if you need more information, you can contact me through that website by clicking the contact link and send me a message there and I'll get back to you. Um, so thank you for listening and now back to the show. As you may already know, I make custom leather guitar straps. I hand make each strap from start to finish. I start with a height of some of the finest vegetable tan leather on the market. Each hide is chosen for exceptional quality, color, and grain. If you haven't been to my website lately, you need to check it out. I've got a bunch of new strap designs and colors listed with more on the way. If you don't see the perfect strap, contact me with your custom order idea. 
Visit melcoleather.com to seek examples of custom orders I've done in the past. If you're a dealer, I offer competitive wholesale pricing. Email melcoleather at gmail.com for details. Find me on Facebook, Instagram, and of course, Etsy. If you're listening to this, you get 15% off when you enter code FRETFILES at checkout at melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. Did you find it challenging moving in and out of different climates and different different temperatures? You know, I'm sure if you're touring, you know, on a world tour, you're moving from hot to cold to humid to dry. What kind of an effect did that have on the instruments? Okay, so you want to know about Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so Australia, we did, um, we arrive, we do three days in the Sydney Opera House, and it's it's great. Everything's been shipped over in in a container um, to Australia and then brought in. So there's some salt damage on the outside. I have to kind of clean up everything because um, they're not all airtight. So I get them all fresh. And then we do three shows inside the opera house. Well, when people are in it, it's about 70 degrees, 72 degrees. But when people are not, the room is so big that they push the air conditioning up to like 62 or less. So they base the instruments basically freeze during the day. And then once people start milling in by the end of the show, it's super warm. What a nightmare. It's yeah. So they came from being kind of soggy and wet to a place where they froze for a little bit. So the necks all went straight tuners locked up nuts locked up because the strings kind of, dried out and 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 got sticky and then uh and then once that would happen or once i get it all set halfway through the show or i do a pre-tune before excuse me i'm rambling i do a pre-tune before this show started and then by the time i got half where i tune all 20 guitars to their first occurring instance tuning and by the time i got back to them they could be way out um and have to kind of basically start from scratch um where they were at least close they weren't so much yeah and then do that every day because in australia then we'd ship them in you know we put them back in a truck and then they drive across the desert of australia for three days and then we meet them in brisbane so they'd been cooking for three Uh. days and then we'd get into a new theater which was ice cold again in order to keep up with the heat and the guitars would go wonky. So I'd spend the morning fixing them, doing sound check at three, four o'clock where they were kind of level. And then by the time I would come back to them at seven, just before, you know, showtime, they'd be out of line again. So would it get bad enough that you'd have to address the fret edges? Yeah. On a couple of guitars, um, for sure. But a lot of these were really old. Um, we didn't carry new instruments and I had, we, the other luxury working with them is we only did three weeks on three weeks off. Most touring bands go out for longer than that, but we kind of, Justin is, uh, is a family guy and cares about the people around him. So we, we had these amazing tours where, we'd have two or three weeks in between. So when I had huge kind of refrets or 
you know, dresses or things, I knew I could take care of it in those spaces. So even after the first leg, everything was pretty much dialed in because I had the luxury of time and prep ahead of time. And the instruments were old, so they were basically, if they were going to, sh- if the frets were, fretboards were going to shrink, they had already done. Yeah. So, you know, we were traveling with 60s guitars and 70s guitars and, and, um, everything was, was, I don't think we had anything newer than, like early nineties. So, um, so it was safe that way, but um, I'm sure some guitars are a little more tolerant. You know, I'm thinking maybe like a, you know, Telecaster with, with heavier strings and a little higher action is probably a pretty tolerant guitar to fluctuations in temperature and humidity. But, uh, I'm sure the acoustic instruments were the the biggest problem. Yeah. Well, uh, the electrics were great. I mean, Justin, we 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 did those shows with a no string change mandate. Um, really, he likes strings to be as dead as possible. Yeah, I had to let them know when I was changing strings. He he uses elevens with a wound G, mm-hmm. and most of the guys do too. And so when I decide I had to change a string, I'd have to let them know so that they they would know that the guitar would be a little stretchy for the night or whatever. But I I would push them as far as we could just because the tone that he wanted was all there too. So Yeah. That's um, challenging too because the older strings get sometimes the intonation starts to go. So yeah. you've got old strings that are not tuning properly and the right. artist the artist does not want fresh strings. That's a right. challenge. Yeah, but uh luckily I had made sure all of my saddles and Alan you know, screws were adjustable and fully functional. So instead of changing strings for two hours every day, I did intonation checks uh, like six at a time. So every day I'd pick a new six and kind of double check. Or if I heard uh, anything the night before, I would make a note and then spot check all of that stuff. So Interesting. The acoustic stuff, uh, you were absolutely correct, was the wonky thing. Justin's main guitar and his biggest hit is a is a tune called Skinny Love, and it's played on a 1930s um, national. And, uh, man, that guy was a monster. And uh, just because I couldn't ever get the biscuit to sit where it would stay. Hmm. So we had we – had, we, <laughs> We had to tune a couple of strings sharp by, you know, 15 cents and tune a couple of strings flat by 10 or 12 just so it would kind of line up by the time it kind of got to him. And the other thing is the the pickup that he loves uh, is an active pickup. So I had to uh, steal the uh, the Rico tone uh, jack out of uh, a 68 Rickenbacker 12 that we used to wire it up so that I could, uh, have a, a powered signal, uh, to actually tune the guitar. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of like, I didn't realize that until we were already gone away from the studio rehearsal space and we were at the theater practicing and I was like, why can't I why can't I tune? Oh, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are tricky guitars because they're almost impossible to intonate. If if things are off, you can sometimes you can slide the cone 
forward or backward a little bit, but it's all six strings at the same time. There's really not a whole lot you can do. So I can understand, you know, tuning this string a little bit sharp, this string a little bit flat so that it so that it sounds as pleasant as possible. But what yeah. what a challenge, man. That's that's crazy. It was a as a tempered tuning attempt for yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that's I mean that's the other thing too about guitar teching. So I was I was tuning for three guys who all play with different attacks. You oh know? yeah. Mm-hmm. We had we had rehearsals and I'd bring guitars out and put them in the drop stand behind them and they'd pick up their guitars and they'd get all cranky with me because they were out of tune. And we had you know two hours of this and I was finally like, all right guys, we need to take a break. And and so I took you know just any guitar out there. I'm like, okay tune tune your guitar for me and so they tune it and i was like you're you're happy with that that's in tune and they were like yeah then i was like give me the guitar so i put the guitar on and i picked the strings you know until i found where their in tune was and then so then i theoretically kind of knew how hard they were pressing then i made them put the guitar down in the stand and then i went and grabbed another guitar went and had the second guitar player tune on a different guitar. And then after just those two minutes, I picked the guitar up and gave it back to guitar player number one. And of course the guitar was slightly out of tune, you know? So I had to teach the lesson that I'm delivering guitars. Now that I know what their pressure is, I'm delivering guitars as, as close to in tune as I can get them. But even just standing in this stand for enough time for me to go grab a guitar and give it to another player was enough to kind of knock it out. So we had to get everybody, including myself, tuning with the same tuners. Then that way I knew, you know, essentially where the reaction time would be. And I had to learn all three of their playing pressures so that I knew when they picked up their guitars that my in tune was their in tune. Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a tricky lesson to learn, but it worked. It helped both of us because then they they knew to let some of that go because they just wanted to do a good job and sound really good, and I wanted to do the same and show them that I was delivering for them as best I could. So that's amazing. You know, there's a lot more thought that goes into that than than I. You know, I'm sure I, I assumed a lot of thought went into it, but just the details are fascinating. That really is something. That what yeah. what was your what was your uh, road toolkit like did it did it differ a lot from a toolkit you'd have in your home shop uh, kind of i'm a maniac so my my case was a uh probably five and a half foot tall uh 36 wide by 34 deep um case it, it weighed 557 pounds i know that because we had to have it weighed for freight and uh it had uh, I had routers or I had a router in there, some bits. I had clamps. I had uh, preset clamping blocks and, cl- and cowls. I had a drawer full of tubes. I had a drawer full of strings, and then a drawer full of tuners, files. So every you know the every hand tool that you could get, I packed and took. I didn't. My my fear was to not ever be prepared. So when it came, you know, so I would. I'd have to do, we were uh, touring with a band called Other Lives and uh, from uh, the Northeast somewhere, I think. And we were in Seattle when we said, so I think the day before in Portland, they, um, 
they played and their guitar, their lead singer came to me and he's like, my guitar is cracked. Can you look at it? And it was a Taylor uh, guitar. And I looked at it and it was cracked. The side had split from the head block to the tail block. Oh. 22, 22 and a half inches completely down. And it's the, his main guitar. Mm. So I had to clean that up. And luckily I had, you know, seven spool clamps and, uh, and, and three 12 inch Berthas and a couple of quick clamps, you know, so I could, I could do that repair. And then, or when we decided to put our bass player on a, uh, monitor riser that had subs attached to it so he could feel the bass in his feet. Well, in order to make him fit on the stage, uh, cause we were getting ready for festivals. So we had everybody, um, stand on risers essentially. So then we could just r- roll out their, their playing stations essentially, um, once we got to festivals. So that's why if you look at Bon Iver shows from those dates is Justin, or they were touring so heavily that we wanted to be prepared for everything. So for that new monitor with the sub basically built into the floor for his pedal board to fit on, I had to build an extension that would clamp onto the riser. So I had to send a runner out to get uh, a sheet of uh, three-quarter ply, you know, two-by-four ply. And then, oh, I had a jigsaw so I could um, I could cut it into shape and build basically a, a, a foot extension that was uh, 14 inches wide by 20 inches um, deep that we – I would just C-clamp onto the riser every night and then – his pedal board would hang, you know, basically the the right four and a half to six inches would hang off the riser. And instead of dropping down and being on level and wobbly, it's stood on that platform extension that I had to build. So my 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 toolbox kind of saved me. I was given the luxury of custom designing it so that it, it you know, the 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 height of the the work table was my perfect height, which didn't work so well when we hired my apprentice, who's um, not the same height as me. Mm-hmm. So my workstation height was a little high for him. So, um, but yeah, it's a it was it was great. It's a is also kind of the the scariest moment of being a guitar tech on tour for me happened with my workbox, which is I'm sure a story everybody's going to want to live or hear. But um, we were at Bonnaroo in 2012, mm-hmm. and uh, we had been touring for nine months straight, and our casters were all shot because we were using ISO cabs, keeping all of the amps upstage in basically boxes, isolation boxes that we'd put studio microphones in. Mm-hmm. And so we had the, the crew... Uh, bring a forklift over and then that way they'd lift up our cabinets and we'd replace the casters with new casters and then that way we could ship them off to Europe to be ready for festival season. Well, the last case to get is my workbox and the only way to get to the the lift is upstage and out left. So I've got my carts and the uh, the Beach Boys are about to come on and I've got my my workbox and I'm pushing it as fast as I can along the upstage um, curtain and there's a leg uh, just before I get to um, to the exit essentially and a leg is, is one of those curtains that hangs on the side of the stage that's like 
you know, 30 feet tall and 20 feet wide, and it's supposed to keep the audience from seeing what's in the back of the stage. So I'm, I'm bustling by that leg going as quickly as I can, and I see somebody walking in front of me, and uh, I'm like, okay, this will be fine. But then I notice his elbow, his right elbow, is behind him, and he, and it then kind of moves forward just a little bit at a rather slow pace. I was kind of surprised. And again, I'm cruising, you know, at a, at a, you know, like a speed walk pace behind this 557 pound case. And then as they're walking, I noticed there's a second person behind him and it was one of the beach boys ushering Brian Wilson onto the stage. And I'm, <laughs> I'm going at a full clip with my cabinet that I've got to replace the casters with you know, as fast as I can. And luckily, <laughs> luckily I was a skateboarder because I, uh, I, I swore to myself and I, I do what you do when you jump off your board. You, you put that first foot off as hard as you can. And my arms are long enough that I, I grab the, uh, the northwest corner of my work box and the southeast corner of my work box <laughs> with my hands. And I pivoted as hard as I could through the legs so that big giant heavy curtain kind of comes up and over my head and uh i basically put my back right you know just kind of pivoted right around brian wilson with this cabinet and just missed him and then uh yeah got off stage gave my apprentice or my co-tech my tour box and and shook and cried for the next half an hour so (laughs) (laughs) that is hilarious I almost killed Brian Wilson. Well, it's, you know, <laughs> almost is okay. Yeah, it was so scary. So wow. But yeah, it was crazy. It's, uh... Did you ever find yourself um, really lacking a tool or a or a specific thing that you needed on tour that you just didn't have? I was super prepared. There was a couple of times. I'm as methodical as it gets. I, I, yeah, I didn't want to let anybody down and I knew I could kind of cobble things together. The times where I was stuck without stuff. So Saturday Night Live, we, um, you have to load into the building, um, with everything you need for the show, which is not what you need for tour. Um, a tour show, you do an hour and a half worth of music. So you're 20 songs, right? Saturday Night Live, you do two songs. Mm -hmm. So I only needed seven guitars because that's what those three guitar players needed for two songs and and the bass player needed. So everything else stayed in the trunks and stayed in the semis and went, went out on the semis and, and, uh, kind of parked in a lot somewhere in New Jersey, you know, not in 20 rock or whatever. So, we do, um, Wednesday, they did camera blocking. Um, Thursday, they did sound check and, um, where they kind of checked the levels and had another run through. And then Friday, we get in and Justin tells me, he goes, he's like, he has a 1963 Les Paul custom, um, like burgundy red gold hardware SG. And, uh, he, he gets off stage after just their line check before the show. And he goes, there's something wrong with the input jack. It's shorting out. 
And I was like, oh gosh, you know? So I swapped out a new cable instantly, but I went back to my station and started playing with the jack, and sure enough, there was some fuzz somewhere, so I didn't know if it was just static that was catching in it or what it is. But my auxiliary electronics box, you know, I have uh, one of those, I had fishing lure boxes full of extra input jacks, extra three-way switches, every extra five-way switches, capacitors and potentiometers all set in case I needed to just swap some stuff out. Well, that was... That was on the semi sitting in a parking lot in New Jersey. And I asked their runner to go to the nearest uh, shop to get me one. And they wouldn't send a runner because it would cost too much in cab fare. So <laughs> luckily, I had pulled my uh, 93 Caribbean Mist Telecaster um, out as an emergency guitar. And I had just put in a new input jack uh, four days earlier um, just because I had just gotten – I am I have an addiction to 93 Caribbean Mist Telecasters. <laughs> my, uh, my longest standing customer is, is the same way. And I started feeling weird when I didn't have one of those in the shop. And uh, so I had to buy one for myself. But anyway <laughs> – it's this weird thing that happens when you work on instruments for too long. Um, so I pulled that Telecaster and unsoldered the input jack I had put in days before and put it in his left or put it in his guitar to be ready for the show. So, um, it, and nice. the other time it happened was like when we were at Ellen, I had pulled the guitars and everything we needed for the two songs and, uh, there there were rumors that Ellen wanted Justin to play a song that was her favorite song, and there was some back and forth. And uh, I get the last, you know, and again, it was unload at the studios, and then the trucks go sit someplace else. Well, they let me know just as they were loading up the trucks that they wanted to play uh, or they wanted to use the National and so I had to go down the lot and open the truck and search through all four of my bins that had been – it wasn't set up for my normal pack. It was a, a different pack, so the guitar was in the completely opposite space, but it was just because I tried to condense things so I could use what I needed to for the show. Yeah. And then I had to run back across the lot, whatever lot she's on, and get it in for one song. So that's – that's really only the only time I was missing things. Like I had, I had everything you can kind of imagine just because I knew I'd be away from my shop in Minnesota and I, uh, I'd scare myself to death thinking of things that could potentially go wrong. Sure. Leading up to tour so that I had, I had a checklist, I had spreadsheets, I had, you know, um, everything kind of wow done and prepacked. But it's just because I had done so many of those like local punk tours where you've gone to shows and you're, you know, you're, you're missing the power cable for your vintage amplifier or yeah. whatever. So you, you, you have to, I guess I've, I've done that enough time or enough times to kind of know what I can prepare for. So luckily when I got to the level I needed to be at, I, I hopefully I represented myself okay. 
Well, this has been so. fascinating because I, you know, when I worked in Seattle, I worked in a, uh, a, I would call it a pro shop in, in Seattle. Emerald City Guitars, actually, is the yeah. name of the shop. And uh, yeah. I would, oh, you've been there? Yep. We might yeah, my brother... My brother works for uh, Capita Snowboards uh-huh. and Union Bindings uh, for probably ten years in Seattle. So um, I'd go, I'd go to visit my brother and go riding once every two years. And of course, he would be the really nice little brother and take me to all the guitar shops in town. Oh yeah, on the time off. So well, yeah, we sort of we may yeah. have met then because I was there for fifteen years. So oh wow. Uh, but it was always astonishing to me. You know, I worked on guitars for just household name. I don't want to mention any names. You know, bands would come through Seattle, and it was always astonishing to me how inept their crew seemed to be. They would have a tech who didn't know which way the guitar went. I mean, it was unbelievable to me. I, I was always astonished. I wish every pro band had a Todd Luneberg because I was astonished at how um, the these uh, bands would send their tech down to me and they would have something as simple as a jack that needed to be cleaned and adjusted and they couldn't, they couldn't do it. And I thought, why are you on tour with this household name band and you can't even clean a jack. Right. Yep. It's so I, I wrote a story for the Fretboard Journal, um, which I'm a contributor to. Uh, some it's it, it was interesting going out to, you know, I, I scared myself into being fancy, you know, and custom building pedal boards for, you know, every guy on in the band and then I went and then we did Coachella where Radiohead opened up for us and you know Johnny's pedal board is literally two by fours and spray painted uh, three quarter sheet of plywood mm-hmm. and but there you know so I kind of was like oh you realize that there are multi levels to being efficient but you'd you'd also meet guys that were cousins of band members or the sure. tour manager because the band was Granted a name, it was the the tour manager that they loved so much, but maybe couldn't handle doing the the countout at the end of the night. But he played guitar, so let's keep him around because he makes us feel good and he makes us feel like we have a family and a safe space when we tour. That we we keep him there. So there's a whole wide range, you know. Sometimes it's it's bands that start in college, and so they have their friends come out because, well, I, yeah. It, it, it does, um, it does hit the spectrum. But then again, you have large bands that don't tour with techs. They, especially when they're opening, they, they kind of, I had a lot of openers kind of rely on me for some work, but I also had a lot of, a lot of players that didn't trust me exactly for that reason. You know, I, the first time I met one singer, um, she was like, you're not one of those techs that's going to be doing drugs in the back of my, you know. <laughs> and then she wouldn't let me touch her guitars when there was obviously a problem. She was getting some crackles, something awful, and she wouldn't let me touch it. So until she figured out where, what I was capable of. And, uh, and that's the thing. I mean, everybody will ask, you know, how do you get the gig with X band? And, you know, everybody will talk about it. it's all who you know. And I think that's that's the wrong side of the coin, you know. It's how it's how those people know you. you mm-hmm. know? It, yeah. It's 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 
yes, you have to be good at what you do, but you also have to be a good hang, and you have to be a guy that's not going to be chasing after whatever goofy guys chase after when they're trying to be cool. So it's Yeah, and there's a lot of that that goes around. I mean, it's not it's not architecture. We're talking about, you know, touring rock and roll. I mean, that's right. that's the culture, you know, but there has to be a level of professionalism and preparedness when it comes to uh people that are on, you know, the crew. Right. They have to, yeah, they have to be able to, you know, deal with the local help that's there, that's sometimes there and capable, and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes it's just volunteer college kids who are coming out for a show and, and decide that they're ready to unload three semis worth of gear to kind of get their free ticket, and which is fantastic, but you have to n- not be mean to those kids that don't know how to wrap a cable or mm-hmm. don't know how to, you know, don't know what stage right is from stage left or upstage or downstage, any of those kind of things. But um, when it comes to instruments, though, it's, uh, yeah, having the patience to work in the changing conditions, you know, outdoor venue one day where it rains. Like we we did a show in Portugal where we played in a cloud, you know, and the next day and the, the, the 68 P bass that the, the bass player was playing, you know, instead of being the, the ash color, all of a sudden turned cloudy white. The lacquer just absorbed all of the, all the moisture in the air and, and, you know, was a foggy haze. But then the next day you're in a theater where everything's drying out from being super wet the next day. And it was crazy for setups, but yeah, I guess, yeah, I don't, talent is, is hard to come by. And even, I guess it's like, you know, my dad always said, you know, just cause you do a job doesn't mean you should. So well, boy, kinda... that's true. Unfortunately, <laughs> that happens all too many times in our industry, but there's also, um, just absolute amazing repair guys and technicians that I, that are both on the road and in shops. I mean, just guys that have an attention to detail and, uh, a knack for, uh, you know, just a natural Absolutely. knack for it that it sometimes it's astonishing. And you can sometimes you see it in somebody that's starting out or somebody young that's that's mm-hmm. just getting into it. You can see that spark in them and you can tell that they have uh, the 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 desire and the drive uh, and the knack to be yeah. professional. The, yeah, the ability to think spatially and, and to, to, to work their troubleshoot chart in their head, you know, in real time. So mm-hmm. it's kind of great. But yeah, I mean, you find great people all over the place. Like in Brisbane, Australia, there's a guy who runs a shop called Tim's Guitars. He builds mm-hmm. these, uh, uh, fuzz pedals and, and, uh, Moserite copy guitars down there. And he's the guy that everybody goes to in Australia because he's great. He's, literally booked out for a setup, you know, just a simple setup for like six to seven months. Wow. And, but it's, it's because he's so good. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then there's, there's amazing techs. I mean, when I left, they found, you know, another great tech to kind of just jump in and take over and it was kind of fantastic. So, but yeah, it's a, it takes, it takes a good vetting process, but it's, um, it's worth it when you find a good one. So, or when, help foster a good one. Do you have any advice for those that are just starting out in the industry or those that want to get into it? Do you have any advice? So my career 
um, really took off because I had uh, I had a couple things going for me. I I had a roommate who had some cousins in a cool band in Minneapolis that I got connected to, and I had that tenacity to kind of go in and ask for a job. Um, the best thing to do as a tech is to go to shows, go to shows and talk to talk to the players, even if not that you're going to sell your skills or whatever. But again, it goes to it goes to how people know you. You know, if you two or three shows for the same band, you're the guy that comes all the time. And by that fourth and fifth show, you're the guy that that does guitar work. And then maybe I'll try you. And then they'll link you to to the other band or the next band and the next band. And then, you know, 12 years into a career, one of your friends who plays saxophone will play on this other guy's album who says he needs a tech. And then that's how I got the Bon Iver gig is it's just doing doing the small things right um, and uh, and and giving yourself a way to kind of keep track of your work as you're doing it. Um I I have a new apprentice in the shop and she's learning everything and you know I uh I'll stop I was doing a dress today that wasn't right and I I halfway let a fret go that wasn't great and then I scolded myself in front of her and she laughed so hard and uh I corrected everything and it was fine and great and turned out great you know but holding yourself to the standards that you would want your instruments to be kept at is is key. I don't let anything slide and I didn't I didn't go to guitar making school. I uh I got told by an old guy to to do this and and get him done by Thursday and then he'd come and stand over my shoulder and kind of frown and huff and say no 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 you're going to want to turn that allen wrench the other way kind of thing. And um but yeah, go to shows and and uh and talk to the musicians like uh, a person and not a fan mm-hmm. and, uh, and see what, see what happens after that third or fourth show. You know, if you, if you want to try guitars or whatever, or, or try doing tech work, um, then you can kind of offer that. I mean, there's lots of guys that, and I know listeners that they call in with questions for you. It seems like a, a lot of hobbyists kind of jumping in on projects that they want to start for themselves mm-hmm. when it's, when it's tech work, it's again, it's that how people know you. Um, they're pulling from their local shops. They're pulling from their local tech pool or friend pool where they're call their favorite guitar player in town and say, who does your work for you? And if you're, if you're working at the shop that that guy's had a bad experience from because something was done halfway and you didn't clean up all your glue, you know, when you refretted or dressed something, then then you're not going to get it. But if they if they know you as the guy who's consistent and and forthright, when I think in your last podcast you said you had a you had a mistake where you had to call the guy and say, well, good news is uh, I'm you're getting a new set of tuners or whatever. And uh, and that's that's what it takes. It's the character behind the work that gets it. That's the thing. I'm in a I'm in a super rural area now, and they you know there's seven guitar shops all struggling to kind of stay open, but none of them have a, a certified tech. And I can be that guy for all those shops. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't step on toes, and I I help out when I can. But a lot of my work is redoing work that has come out of those shops. Oh yeah, I hear you. I do a lot of that. 
and and that's and that's great. I'm happy for the work, but I have to sell the customer on explain explain the fix and explain that they they probably just didn't realize that they were you know gluing on a bridge with super glue yeah. rather than yeah it's tough. Thing. So it's you kind of have to to walk that line, but it's it character is is the biggest thing to focus on. Um, yeah, it's huge. It's huge, it's, and and one bad repair can uh can make the rounds a, a lot more than than 12 yeah. good repairs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or 30. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So uh yeah, you can't let stuff like that slip. Yeah. Todd, thanks I, so much for being on the show, man. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, yeah, no problem. I was happy to happy to do it. I thought of something for your uh I was just listening catching up on all my podcasts and you had a question about what to do with your left-handed um, player that couldn't get a decent Oh, setup. yeah, yes, absolutely. So uh, I would suggest that they learn their numbers um, in that if you – I don't know. Do you use the Stumac string height caliper at all? I don't, but uh, I'm familiar with it. So rather than feeler gauges, it's, you know, it's the 60 or $80 tool, but – any left-handed, any right-handed player, when you go into a shop for a setup, you can take those numbers and you can say, I want my, my low E string at 24 thousandths. I want my, my D string at 20. And if you know your numbers, and it's, that's, it's just like, that will, that will help. So it will. right-handed, handed. So it's, a uh, when you find a good tech, ask them to tell you your numbers, write it on a piece of paper, stick it in your case. And then have them have the next shop you take it to hit those numbers for you. Yeah, it should, that, it should be repeatable as long as the neck is where it should be. Yeah, right. Which should be a part you should check the relief. You know, yep. just like in uh, in the Dan Early Wine setup charts, there's the 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 neck relief is is part of the thing a good tech should go through. You so. bet. Yeah. Know your numbers. Yep, that's good advice, Todd. Thank you so much for being part of the show, and I hope to talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, man. Thanks, Todd. Take care, man. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Todd Luneberg. I sure did. I learned some things that I didn't know, which is always fun, and uh, just made me think about things that, uh, you know, I, I know, I don't have to think about because I'm not a road tech. That was very cool. Cool stories. Um, if you like the show, give us a good rating on whatever uh, podcast app you're using, or iTunes, or Stitcher, or whatever you're using. It helps us get more listeners, helps spread the good word. If you want to participate in the show, next week, or next episode, I should say, will be more question and answers. So get your questions submitted. The way to do that is to go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link, and you can submit your question or comment there. The other way to do it is to call 757-774-8482. You can call or text that number, 757-774-8482, and we will use your question or comment as part of the show. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time.